This is They Create Worlds, episode 197, The Id of Game Development. If anybody wants to find me. Welcome to They Create World, a world full of doom. And this is my co-host, Alex, who has joined us via a very complicated modem connection so that we can join you together to play Doom and watch Doom and talk about Doom together. Hello? I, I, I lag, lag. We need that ISDN line. <laughs> That's right. We are going back to those heady days of the early 90s when internet was dial-up and nothing worked the way it should to talk about that monumental software house, id Software. However, before we do, there is just a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. This is, of course, our November 1st episode, which means that it is being listened to after our no-doubt phenomenal live stream on the 28th of October related to handheld gaming. However, because Jeffrey does need more than three days to put an episode together, this was recorded before said live stream. I would like to get some sleep when I'm editing these things. Exactly. So I do just want to send out a thank you for everybody who joined us, uh, everybody who sent in their thoughts, memories, etc. You all know who you are. I literally do not because I am coming to you from the past. But uh, we may have more to talk about in this in an upcoming episode. Just wanted to throw that out there since things are going to be a little out of sync here. Who knows? Maybe if things work out right, I can do a little interjection here from future us. Never know. So if you're looking at this episode title and you look at our archives, you're probably asking yourselves one very important little thing. Guys, you kind of talked about Doom before. I did the whole thing that says Doom. You did a nice little intro for it and everything. It was cool. It was awesome. Why are you doing this again? Well, first of all, this isn't a Doom episode. This is an id Software episode. We're going to be talking about more than just the game Doom. Second of all, that episode was episode number 30, for those of you keeping score at home. And this is like episode 196. 97! Number 7! Get back to the truck! Yes, episode 197. We've learned ourselves a few things. No offense to our past selves, but I think we put out a much better product than we did when we started, even though the product from the start was a pretty darn good product, as long as we're not counting the very first recording of the very first episode, which is frightening and only available to Patreon subscribers and those they leak it to. We can take a different approach on some of this material, and we've done that in the past. Like when we did some uh, more in-depth in television material after we'd done a Mattel Electronics episode early in the run of the podcast. We go a lot more in-depth or put things in better context, maybe a better way to put it, than we did in our earliest episodes. There's a lot of material in there that's ripe for revisiting. This is not just going to be a carbon copy of that episode, far from it. 
we're going to take a look at the early years of id. We're not going all the way up to the present. Through the context of how they really transformed game development. And we're not talking about, in this case, technologies or genres or that kind of thing, even though there was influence there as well. But we're going to talk about how id was one of the most important companies, really, in defining the way games are made today from kind of a division of labor standpoint, because they were really crucial in the transition, particularly in the United States. In Japan, things were a little more developed on these lines before this time, but they were really instrumental in getting game development from the point where you were just had one or two people, maybe just a programmer who also designed the game. Maybe you brought in an artist, maybe a musician, maybe you had a co-programmer to help you, but you had this kind of small core and got that to the point where you have all of these specialized jobs and specialized division of labor within these broad categories. Doom and other id games were kind of the impetus for moving in this direction, but also were the impetus that kind of caused the collapse of the company in its first form, obviously continued to exist, but the collapse of the initial partnership, because they kind of bridged that gap. They were the last really small team, or nearly the last really small team, that could create a AAA game with very few people. But because of the way they were pushing the discipline forward, very soon after that, it was impossible to create a AAA game without tons and tons and tons of people, a number that keeps growing every console generation, every few uh, Moore's Law cycles in computers. And that is an interesting way to look at the company that uh, we haven't done before. So instead of this being a book review of Masters of Doom, we're going to really look at the company and a lot of the various structures that they were able to establish in the video game industry that a lot of other companies went, you know, that's a good idea. Let's copy that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So where do we want to start from the Johns getting together, Commander King, Wolfenstein 3D? <laughs> Uh, no, we, we do really have to start before the creation of id. We really have to start with John Romero coming to the company soft disc. We talked about some of this, of course, in our other id episode, and this isn't a John Romero episode, so we won't go into his whole background in any kind of detail. But suffice it to say, John Romero was an ace programmer, a fantastic game designer. He had gotten his start submitting a lot of little Apple games to various magazines that would publish type-in listings. You'd subscribe to the magazine, and every month they'd have a bunch of game listings that you could type in yourself. Romero would get paid for submitting these games to the magazine. Parlayed that into a job with Origin Systems, where he was very briefly until he went off with one of his co-workers to do a startup, spun out of Origin. The startup failed almost immediately, and in need of a job, he was connecting with one of his old contacts at one of the magazines that he was always submitting programs to, Jay Wilbur, who informed them that he himself was about to interview at a company down in Shreveport, Louisiana, called SoftDisk. SoftDisk was kind of an evolution of these magazines that Romero had been submitting to before, except now, instead of getting a monthly subscription where you got a bunch of type-in listings, floppy disks were cheap enough that they would just send you a free floppy with a magazine. It came with a magazine, but a free floppy every month with all sorts of random programs on it. It was started before floppy disks were cheap. It was started back in 1981. 
back then, they told you you had to send the disc back to get the next round of products next time. As floppy disks came down in price, that was no longer a concern. This was kind of akin to what the indie scene looked like at the time. It was not many games. Most of it was little utility programs instead, with a few games mixed in. But this was kind of the equivalent of the indie scene, where it's a medium where people can pump out a bunch of quick, quicker, easier, little, cheaper programs and find some kind of audience for them. Softdisk had a combination of in-house people as well as accepting uh, submissions from the outside and paying for them. Romero, on Wilbur's advice, interviewed there, the person who ran the company and uh, who co-founded the whole venture back in 1981, Alva Covius, was definitely interested in having him come because he was actually looking very briefly at this period of time to expand Softdisk out of this magazine stuff, which he wasn't going to leave. But he wanted to expand out of it and start offering some real full-sized products as well, particularly on the PC, which was becoming a bigger and bigger market. And in fact, even though they had started out on Apple II computers and still had Apple II magazines, their big blue disc magazine, which was their IBM magazine, was their best seller. They had about 50,000 uh, subscribers at the time, a good number for a small magazine like that, devoted to something so niche. Romero was interested in learning PC programming. He was an ace Apple II guy because he has an eidetic memory. He has a, in fact, it's basically a photographic memory. He has nearly perfect recall. He had even memorized all the opcodes for the Apple II. I mean, he was an ace Apple II programmer, knew, though, that the Apple II was a computer of the past. It was near the end of its life. It really was at the end of its life. Knew that PC was the future, which it was at this time, so wanted to learn PC, and this just seemed like a great match because he wanted to get into PC game programming but needed a place where he could learn about it and get some experience. Bacovius didn't mind having a new guy because they were looking to branch out as well. He and his buddy, Lane Roth, who he also put in a good word for, came down to Shreveport and became the new Special Projects Division of Softdisk. This lasted for a couple of months, a few months, during which John Romero was learning how to program on a PC, which he picked up quickly. He's a very good coder, and created a small number of games for the existing magazines as he was doing it. Then Vakovius changed direction. He decided, okay, no, we really don't have the resources to expand into this special projects thing, especially since you were submitting programs to our other departments, and then you got more working on this special projects thing, and then there was there were gaps in our catalog because we didn't have you submitting stuff anymore. So we're forgetting about the special projects thing. I'm sorry, I need you on the magazines. Romero was like, okay, but no, not exactly. What I want to do is make games, and your magazines don't do many games, which is true. They very rarely put out games. Vakovius, always the dealmaker and recognizing Romero's immense talent, was like, okay, fine, fine, here's what we can do. We will create a new magazine that is a game magazine called a PC Arcade at the start, though by the time it actually launched, they called it Gamer's Edge. You can just make games for it, and we'll just, we'll put out one game a month. 
Romero was like, okay, first of all, it's impossible to get a game done in a month in the modern age here unless you want really crappy games. We can't do once a month. So Vokovius is like, okay, fine. We'll do once every two months. Romero was like, okay, but even to meet that kind of schedule of making one game every two months, I'm going to need a small team. I'm going to need an artist, because even at this time, it was recognized that programmers shouldn't be doing art. And I'm going to need another programmer. Vokovius was like, okay, fine. You can get a team together. At this point, Jay Wilbur, who did end up joining the company as well, he's the one that turned Romero on to Softdisk, told him about this hotshot programmer in Kansas City named John Carmack. John Carmack was just an absolutely incredible programmer, still is, who had had a bit of a troubled life a little bit. He was a bit of a delinquent. He was insatiably curious, an avid reader, an avid experimenter, and a fanatical programmer. He decided to put a couple of these things together. He needed an Apple II to program on. The school had one. He didn't. He figured out a chemical compound that eats through glass. He and a friend went to the school, used this chemical compound to burn a hole in a window so he could go in and steal an Apple II. He was able to fit through the hole. His friend was unable to fit through the hole, so they undid the latch on the window, which triggered a silent alarm, which brought the cops, which got John Carmack a one-way ticket to reformatory school. He then went on to college for a year, didn't like it, and was a dropout, and now he was working at like a pizza parlor or something in Kansas City while programming games in his spare time and submitting them around. John Romero had played a couple of John Carmack's games and was like, yeah, he's great, this'll be perfect, and Jay was like, sure, but he refuses to join us. I've tried to hire him twice and he turned me down. John Romero was like, no, with me, it'll be different. I'm a fellow coder. I'm a fellow game aficionado. Get me in a room with him and the promise of working with someone like me, and I'm sure he'll join. It turned out that worked. This new division started out as the two Johns and an artist intern that had been working for the company on an internship basis and was now going to be brought on full time named Adrian Carmack, remarkably no relation to John Carmack. Amazing that two people with the last name of Carmack ended up working there together and founding it together without being related, but it's true. They may be in the distant past, but not in any way that mattered. They didn't know anybody, and, you know, John Carmack was from the Midwest and Adrian was from Shreveport, so they truly were different. And then very, very briefly, Lane was with them as well, though they pushed him out pretty quickly because he didn't seem like he was altogether enthusiastic. So this was the beginning of the Gamer's Edge team at Softdisk, which is kind of where it comes out of. It's really through this Gamer's Edge experience that the way id becomes organized, and by extension, kind of the way the larger industry starts to organize afterwards, gets formed. The reason for that is there were two of them to start. There were programmers. And they had to create one high-quality game every two months, which was a tall order. They could still be relatively simple games, and they're going to be 2D, they're going to be sprite-based, they're for the IBM PC, which at this time isn't exactly the most elite of elite 
of gaming environments. So we're not talking about whipping up Quake in two months by any stretch, but that's still a lot. And it has to fit on a 1.4 megabyte floppy. 0.44, (laughs) lest we forget. But yeah, capacity obviously is not great either. So, you know, these weren't going to be super complex, but that's still a lot. And in fact, the very first thing they were asked to do is, oh, by the way, we're going to advertise your magazine by having a special bonus in the next issue of Big Blue Disc. So I'm going to need two games in a month from you to start this thing out. What did I just tell you about programming a game in a month? (laughs) Well, what they did for that one is they each took one of their old Apple II games and ported it over to the IBM PC. They worked separately on that. But once that was done, they had two months to come up with their first original game and complete it. You know, they're arcade nuts, of course. Who wasn't? So they decide to do a vertically scrolling shooter, very similar to Xevious, by the name of Slordax. S-L-O-R-D-A-X. At this time, scrolling was pretty uncommon on the PC, though vertical scrolling was, for a variety of technical reasons, fairly simple to do as opposed to horizontal scrolling, which was considered virtually impossible at this time to do in a smooth manner unless your frame rate was, you know, near zero. So it was going to be an impressive debut, but in order to get that thing done in a reasonable amount of time, in that two months, they knew they would have to maximize their efficiency. They were going to have to work together, and they were going to have to be laser-focused on different aspects of the game. So, basically, John Romero, because this was his thing, he was the leader of this group. John Romero basically asked John Carmack, okay, it's like, you know, what do you want to do? Because he figured the more enthusiastic you are for your portion of something, the better a job you're going to do, or the more efficient a job you're going to do, the harder you'll work on it, etc. It makes sense. John Carmack said, well, graphics programming is what I'm really interested in learning more about, and AI's kind of cool, so I'll focus on the graphics and AI, and then John Romero was like, okay, fine, then I'll focus on everything else. What they did here, and this would not be kind of institutionalized in this way for a few more years, but what they basically did here, even though they didn't realize they were doing it, was they were separating engine coding from scripting and gameplay coding. This is a kind of big moment. And for the record, I'm not saying they were the first to ever do this. None of what we are talking about today is about did it do it first? Because in most cases, the answer is going to be no. We're not trying to determine who was the first to do this or that. What we are aiming to show in this episode is how id followed a path to a certain way of working that was then emulated throughout the wider industry once id became successful. They're really the ones who really popularized it. Exactly. So don't worry about firsts or think that we're worried about firsts. This is all about moments in id history that were defining, and this was one of those moments. They weren't even thinking in terms of a game engine. They did not consider what they were doing in Slordax a game engine. But by doing a strict division of programming duties, first of all, at this time, it was rare to have multiple programmers on games. 
when you did have multiple programmers, you still generally had one principal programmer that kind of did all the big stuff, and then maybe you had another programmer or two that helped on very specialized things like programming booters and loading screens and audio and stuff like that. The idea that you would take the main, what should I call it, the main, the main game, like the main elements of a game, and divide them up like this between two programmers. Again, I'm not saying it was unprecedented, but it was not common, and it was certainly something different. Even though they weren't thinking in terms of engines yet, we'll get there later, what they basically have done here is said, okay, John Carmack, you program the engine, and me, John Romero, I will program the gameplay, as well as design the levels and make tools and and do all of this other stuff. Does that kind of make sense how that's kind of a moment here we're talking about? I don't want to oversell it, but I I do think it's important. I certainly understand where you're coming from here, because I actually looked at how our games made at one point and actually made some very simple games back in my day. I made my own clone of Tetris, for example, or my own clone of Tic-Tac-Toe that I made network-based for a class. What you are talking about here is the engine. And what we mean by the engine is not my car engine. (laughs) What I mean is it is the piece of software, the code that takes whatever is going on and just defines a framework. It's sort of like the framing of a house. I'm saying, hey, the structure here has this many windows, this many other things in it. What I mean when I translate that over to a video game is hey, it can handle this many sprites. It can handle this frame rate. It can handle this kind of input. It can handle network playing or not network playing. What it's presenting on the screen and what the graphics are, that's just window dressing. What I need to understand and do well, I need to know how can I do collision detection really, really well. I want to present a viewpoint from a certain angle And I want to be able to show X number of items on that screen and have it show smoothly. Key here being smoothly. We've talked about some of these flight sims where it was not (laughs) very smooth. Absolutely. Like I said, I mean, it's not like these were the kind of things being programmed already even before this. But the idea that you would separate out this chunk of the programming and give it to one programmer and then have other people focusing solely on gameplay and design and the programming behind that. Again, not unprecedented, but very new, and was kind of the beginning of the id journey, in a way. So, minor game, but very important for how things worked out. It was a a true team effort as well, because in addition to that, they also brought in their latest poach, Tom Hall, who again was a programmer, a really good assembly language programmer on the Apple II, hadn't really done much with the PC yet, I don't think, but was also just very creative. I think that's one of the keys that allowed id to be different and start to think about game design in a different way. They had these three hotshot programmers. I mean, the hierarchy is definitely John Carmack, then John Romero, pretty close, and then a little lower down Tom, but they're all good programmers. At this time, you didn't really have three programmers work on a single game. 
you just didn't do that. I mean, like I said, you might have a separate audio programmer and you might hire another programmer to do some of the less important subroutines or subsystems or whatever. But you basically still most of the time had a main programmer doing the main work. So it was unusual to have three hotshot programmers assigned to one game, especially a small little shoot-'em-up like this. But because they had to come up with one game every two months with a small staff, they couldn't afford to have these three hotshot programmers each working on their own game. They had to all come together and do one game. And because of that, they naturally gravitated towards the roles they were best at or the things they were most interested in to efficiently get this done. So you had John Carmack doing the graphics work, the AI work, what we would today call the engine, though they weren't calling it that on Slordax. You had John Romero concentrating on gameplay programming and tools and level design. And you had Tom Hall, who could program, but whose true asset was a very creative individual, also chipping in on the level design as well as the background of the world. And then, of course, Adrian Carmack, the artist they brought in doing the art, which was something that was already kind of an established role in the industry. So with Slordak, this really exemplifies in John Carmack. He's saying, I'm going to code the stuff that dictates how do we display things on the screen? How do we detect that a bullet is hitting my ship? How do I detect that a bullet is hitting the enemy ship? How do I scroll a graphic background? Right. John Romero's coming at it and going, what kind of interesting bosses and monsters do I want to fight my ship? Mm-hmm. How will they enter the screen? Mm-hmm. What kind of pattern will they have when a swarm comes on and some of them disappear? Do they get faster, more intelligent, less intelligent? What's going on here? Does my ship get upgrades? How do those upgrades work? Mm-hmm. What kind of game balance do I want to have? Does my ship take one hit? Does it take three hits? Do the enemy ships take one hit? Do they take 50 hits? How do I design the level that's going to be scrolling back there? Okay, great. Now that I have this vision in place, Tom's looking at it and going, why am I even here? Who is this spaceship? What kind of universe are they in? Why do they care? Try to get the audience engagement there. Then you got Adrian coming in and going, all right, I'm going to draw your tiles for your background. I'm going to draw your spaceships. I'm going to draw these enemies. And I'm going to then give those off to John Romero and say, okay, here's your thing for your tools. Put them in there. See how they work. He and Tom look at it and go, how does this all work? Does this fit the vision? Does this fit the design? Hey, we want to accomplish this new feature here because we think it'd be really cool. Hey, Carmack, can you make the engine do this? (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what we're getting into here. And and the only thing I would add to that, which I think was a great description, is that John Romero was also the tools guy as well. He had a tile editor that he had previously made for one of his Apple II games, Dangerous Dave, and he expanded that tile editor. He, they used this for years through their next several games. Uh, I think in his book, he said a total of 37 games were made using this tool because he expanded it beyond just tile placement. But he created the tool as well. Part of his job was empowering the other designers to be able to do their best work by making it as easy as possible to implement their ideas within the program. Because Romero and Carmack were both hotshot programmers and spoke each other's language, There was this synergy between engine programming and tools programming that was very important and highly unusual at the time. This division, it's not unheard of, but 
it's still unusual at this time, and I think it's only because of these very specific constrained circumstances that they were in that they decided to start working this way, and that is going to continue to be very influential. You know, the next part of the story we don't have to go into a lot of detail on because we've covered it before, and so have so many other publications. Part of the reason I didn't want to do just a straightforward history of id is because Masters of Doom did that and did it very well. John Romero himself did it again in his autobiography, Doom Guy. While that's obviously one person's opinion of things and so is biased a little bit in that way because of his photographic memory, I mean, he remembers conversations accurately that happened 30 years ago. It's an interesting perspective on the whole thing because of his incredible memory. You know, that's been done. We don't want to do that again. What we want to do is take this slightly different track. So, of course, after that, they do Slordax. They're working on other games, you know, for Gamer's Edge. And then John Carmack's learning more and more about graphics programming, uh, reads a book by uh, Michael Abrash, one of the great graphics gurus, and comes up with a way to smoothly scroll horizontally a PC. He and Tom Hall make the Dangerous Dave in copyright infringement, leave it for Romero to see a recreation of the first level of Super Mario Bros. 3 without any enemies, just to, just to show that it smoothly scrolls using John Romero's old character, Dangerous Dave, instead of Mario. Romero's blown away and decides that this is their ticket out of here, that they can go into business for themselves. At the same time, they're being contacted by Scott Miller at Apogee, the shareware guy who's trying to get in touch by sending all of these fan letters under different assumed names because he really wants to do a game with all of them and thinks his shareware format, where you release one episode for free and then charge for two more episodes, would be perfect for them. So this kind of all comes together, and they decide to sign a deal with Apogee, and they decide, while they're still working at Softdisk and still putting out this bi-monthly uh, game that they uh, are required to there, that they will also start working on their own for games published by Apogee. It starts out at this point informally. They don't incorporate a company. At this point, it's John Romero, John Carmack, and Tom Hall. Adrian is part of the Softdisk team, but at this very early stage is not actually part of the cabal that are planning to leave the company. They do come up with a name for themselves, id, software. It comes from a couple of different places. First of all, John Romero, after his leaving Origin and having his startup kind of fall apart, he did create his own company with Lane, kind of a consulting company called Ideas from the Deep. You know, the first word and the last word have those capital letters, I, D, Ideas from the Deep. They also all played in a D&D &D campaign that was DM'd by John Carmack, and they cheekily called their adventure group In Demand because they were level three adventurers. They were puny and nobody really wanted them to save their village, but they, you know, it's kind of a joke. They're like, we are in demand. We're amazing when they're really not. And so that's again, I-D a second time. And Tom Hall kind of looked at all of this and was like, you know, it seems those initials are really associated with you, plus the id being that base level, base instinct level of the brain makes a lot of sense with the idea of the psychological makeup, makes sense for the kind of action games we make. Kind of all of that together, they get that name id Software, which is still not a formal company yet. Commander Keen, which is the trilogy of games that they make for Apogee to do this shareware thing, is kind of the next evolution of this system that we're talking about. I think it's, again, they have to do so much work and they have to do it quickly. 
because now they still have to make games for Gamer's Edge, but they also have to make a trilogy of episodes, essentially three whole games. They're calling them episodes, but it's really three whole games full of levels for Apogee, for the shareware model. And so again, there's no way for one person to be able to do all facets of anything. They have to divide up the responsibilities for making this game. And so they naturally gravitate towards those same kind of roles. Carmack is very interested in graphics and AI. And of course, he's the one that came up with the smooth scrolling that they're going to use in the King Games. So he's doing, again, what we would today call the engine. Romero, since he's also a very good programmer, is focusing on the tools, but because he's also a very good designer, is also focusing on level design. And Tom Hall, who can program, sure, but it's becoming obvious that his greatest asset is to be creative. He came up literally within 10 minutes after they decided they were going to make a game. He came up with the backstory. You know, they were like, what game should we make? And John Carmack was like, what about a kid fighting aliens or something? And then Tom Hall went off and came up with the whole premise in literally 10 minutes. He came up with the premise and the character and then also designed a bunch of levels and did a lot of the art as well, most of the art. And then at the end of the process, they brought Adrian into their cabal as well. And so he did a very little bit of art on Keen, though he really started contributing to the id group mostly after Keen brought in a little later. So we have that same division going on, and there's a real emphasis on the levels. This is something that I feel sets it apart as well from other Western companies especially. Not so much Japanese companies, where games like Super Mario Brothers and Mega Man had some pretty good level design in them. There wasn't much real level design in Western games, I think it's fair to say. Uh, as someone who's played them <laughs> at the time, you know, obviously you have different graphics, different environments, different enemies, different obstacles, but the levels themselves don't tend to feel like they're integral to the experience. I don't know if I'm completely making sense here. They're not the stars. The stars are battling through hordes of enemies and getting that adrenaline rush. The star is not exploring the level, going through the level. And I'm talking about action games here. I'm not talking about an RPG where you're going through dungeons or whatever. In action games in the West, it doesn't feel like the level is the star in the same way as it is in something like, say, Super Mario Bros. 3. Do you think that's fair, having also lived it? I think that's why I liked a lot of the Japanese product more than most American things. Mm -hmm. It does come down to game design, like you're saying. Think back in the time, kids, in the long, long ago, in the far, far away, the early games. You just had guy going from left to right, shooting whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's jumping over pits. Yeah, he's jumping and swinging across stuff and fighting more stuff. But it's just blocks piled on blocks piled on blocks. If you play Mario Maker, a lot of the simple levels out there that aren't a lot of fun to play are just not well designed. Right. You give the level tools to a five-year-old and they're going to tell, oh, this is cool. Let's throw all these monsters here. All this stuff. Give you a <laughs> fireball thing. And like, okay, yeah, whatever, kid. Great. When you actually look at level design, the level itself tells a story. There's actually a good video, I think I've referenced to this before, talking about how the very first level 
of Super Mario Brothers 1 mm -hmm. teaches you how to play the game without hand-holding, pop-up things, whatever. Yes. It goes, okay, you have to go from left to right. There's a wall above you. There's a monster underneath that wall. You have two options. You can run into them or you can jump. So you learn really quickly there, oh, I run into the monster, I die. I jump, I live. Later on, you have a point where I have the stairs that go up, and then there's a pit, mm -hmm. but there's a block on the bottom preventing me from falling into a pit, and there's stairs going down. I learned, huh, this is interesting. I can jump across because I have to go there, and I'm not punished mm -hmm. for failing because I'm learning how jumping works here. Yes. Then only a few screens later, you have the exact same setup with the pit with the blocks Literally. gone, and it's like, okay, yep. we have trained you how jumping works. You're going to have to jump across gaps here. We're taking the training wheels off. Here you go. Jump across. And then it just builds and builds on top of itself. Mm -hmm. It teaches you the mechanics of the game really, really well. Instead of, I can't tell you how many Western games I played as a kid where <laughs> I start the game and I can't leave the first room. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about bad game design? There's a game that Alex has on the Super Nintendo, which I wanted to like, called Batman. Because it had <laughs> Batman on it. And I like Batman. Batman Returns, yeah. Yes, Batman Returns. I tried playing that. I couldn't leave the first room. I couldn't leave <laughs> the first floor of the first room. Because there's nothing there to teach me about the game mechanics. I don't have a manual. We might have rented this game. Who knows? There's nothing in the level design to be like, hey, let's start with these concepts and have you gone. I'm just moving back and forth there going, how do I play this game? It's gone. Goodbye. We're not dealing with this anymore. Exactly. And you know, obviously Nintendo and a few other people, uh, particularly in Japan, were doing this, but it was not the common thing. One thing that id really started focusing on here in Commander Keen was building interesting and engaging levels that were full of secrets and Easter eggs and little touches that invited you to explore. It wasn't just about getting from point A to point B and shooting everything on the way. It was about engaging with the world in a way that level design did not often do back then. So this is another wrinkle. We're getting this division of responsibilities on Slordax. Now we're getting division of responsibilities even more defined, plus bringing in the importance of level design. Level design as a profession is still not a thing. John Romero is doing a bunch of things, including designing levels. Tom Hall is doing a bunch of things, including designing levels. This idea that giving care to your levels, not just to your enemies and your gameplay and your graphics. This is something, again, not unprecedented in Western games, because we're not talking about anything that it did first, but we're talking about the journey they're taking towards a new paradigm for all, and this was another step on that journey in Commander Keen. The next step comes as they leave Softdisk and formally set out on their own as id Software. Of course, as I said, at this time they were moonlighting at Softdisk. They were working at Softdisk, as far as I know, you know, on Softdisk computers and everything, making this stuff. Technically, Alvacovius could have gotten very mad at them and sued them, because while they were his employees, they were making 
these games for a completely different publisher that was not him, even though he was paying them to make games for him. Keen was a smashing success. Keen made oodles of money. It's been overshadowed because Wolfenstein and Doom became such big phenomenons afterwards that they just totally buried Keen. But in its moment, Keen was received with the same level of awe as those later games because smooth scrolling on the PC with a good frame rate was just not considered possible. That was just not a thing. It was big, and Vacovius could have sued or in other ways made their lives miserable, but Vacovius is let's make a deal, guys. It was like, okay, you did that. Well, here, this is what we're going to do. Why don't you leave Softdisk, and we'll found a new company that I will also be a co-owner in. Then we'll all do these amazing games together. The id people were interested in that, but then Vacovius brought that to his staff at Softdisk, and the staff basically mutinied because they were like, wait a minute. So these guys went off on company time, on company equipment, I presume, were making these games on the side, and you're going to reward them for their bad behavior with their own company? And you're just going to keep paying us whatever you pay us to make these magazine games? That is not cool, bro. You do this, we quit. (laughs) So Vakovia said, okay, I'm sorry, I can't do this, but here's what we'll do. You go off, you do your games, I won't sue you, but you owe me, I think it's six, I think the number was six, but it's not too important. You owe me six more games that I can publish on Gamer's Edge after you leave. You're going to have to do this double duty. So again, the, the early history of id is about being swamped with too many projects all the time because they're having to constantly do their own thing at the same time they're doing the Gamer's Edge thing. There's only so many of them. They're a small team, and that's why they get so into their niches and so into their specific disciplines, because that's the only way to efficiently get through all the work they have to do. As id Software, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to do another Keen trilogy. The first Keen trilogy was a hit. Scott Miller wants another one. It's at this point that they take things a step further, and this is the moment that they decide, okay, if we're having to put out all of these games so rapidly, we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel all the time. It's time we really focus on taking the work Carmack is doing, primarily in graphics and AI, making that into something that is extensible and can be reused afterwards. Because they're all fans of fast cars, they decide that they're going to call this an engine. This is the first time on the second set of Commander Keen games is the first time that they decide, okay, what Carmack is building is an engine. Again, it's not the first game engine. First of all, technically, anytime you make a game, there's something vaguely like an engine. And if you sort of reuse that to make a couple of games, you've technically got a reusable game engine. There were a few other conscious efforts to make game engines before this as well. Freescape, a British engine by a company called Incentive Software, is a notable example of that. So again, we're not talking firsts, but they were one of the first to recognize that you should make your core elements, take your core elements on things like graphics and physics and artificial intelligence and whatever else, and divorce that entirely from gameplay specific gameplay elements, 
and have something called an engine that you can continue to build on and improve independent of the specific game that you are working on, and then that you can reuse to make subsequent games without having to do all of that basic work again. So I just went and skipped through a bunch of Commander Keen videos, and you can see the evolution and design there sort of play out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the artwork may remain largely the same, but the level design improves over time as they learn and go, this works, this doesn't work. You get nicer things, nicer features in the engine. For instance, you eventually get parallax, where you have sprites that can be in front of your character as things are scrolling left and right. You don't have that in the earlier game. Mm -hmm. You have more capabilities, more features. But really, what are they trying to accomplish with this engine? I need a 2D engine that is going to show my main character, stay focused on the main character more or less all the time. I need to know when something's hitting that character. You could arguably change the entire asset structure and change that character into a spaceship and then create your own version of Defender scrolling left to right. Mm -hmm. All I need for this engine is scrolling left to right, up, down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have a collision detection thing going on. My ship, my Commander King, whatever. It doesn't matter. That's window dressing. Exactly. I need to have some way to display some information to the player. I might need to be able to show a menu that shows live. I might have to extend the engine so that I bring up a menu system that might show options. What those options are, I don't care. I need some way to display options. What the specifics of that is dictated by the game designers over there in the other room. I need to be able to determine what objects I'm interacting with. Is this a floor object? Am I allowed to pass through it? Is this an item that I intersect with and it gets picked up? Or does it intersect and it does damage to me? Or does it intersect and I do damage to it? I don't know. But the engine handles that. Right. I think it's really hard to describe sometimes just how basic yet still exceedingly complex the engine is. Mm -hmm. What I will do is try to find some videos to try and explain this a bit better. And if you're interested in understanding more about the difference between an engine and game design, I'll try to get that idea across more clearly. Absolutely. There is a reason why these days, in the quote-unquote modern era of video games, there's a lot of people who go, you know, I don't want to deal with all of that. I want to focus on designing the game. Hey, Unreal Engine, here's some money. <laughs> Let me use that thing. Yes. I don't have money. I'm going to go use Godot because it's free and open source. I want to use Panda 3D because whatever. And people used to want to use Unity and until recently, <laughs> dating this episode a little bit, but that's okay. Yes, and uh, Unity, which may or may not still be around in <laughs> a couple of years, who knows? That's right. But this is a good segue because this is another thing, and they are just about the first to do this. I'm not claiming they're the first, but they're very early. John Romero is kind of responsible for figuring out the business side of the company. They've hired a guy named Mark Rain, a Canadian, who is going to help them do retail deals. And in fact, makes a deal with FormGen to create a keen game that needs to be in retail stores in six months, which causes the team to have to make the second keen trilogy 
a duology instead and make the third episode instead be the retail game as opposed to part of the shareware package. Romero's also kind of looking after the business thing, and from his very brief time working at Origin and at the startup he worked with after Origin, he realized, uh, particularly from that startup experience, because it was it was a very small group, just like this id group is, and it didn't work. He knew that as good as their stuff was, they were going to have to find other ways to generate revenue while they were working on their games. And so John Romero has the idea of John Carmack is an amazing engine programmer, and we can call him an engine programmer now because we do have something that they are now referring to as an engine. He is so much better at this than anyone else that I bet other companies would love to just start with his engine to make their own games. So they invited a bunch of people to see the Keen engine and potentially license it from them. People were very impressed, but they only got one license out of it because as part of this, they were sharing the source code of the engine. Once you had the source code of the engine, you had no need to license it again for subsequent stuff because you would just reverse engineer it, rip it off. At this stage, engine licensing didn't take off as a thing, but... Romero had the idea, even at this early stage, that this is a thing you can do. License your engine as middleware to other companies. He also made a very important connection with a company called Raven Software during this time period. The reason this happened is that id was very briefly in Wisconsin. They were all in Shreveport working for Gamer's Edge. They decided that as part of leaving Gamer's Edge. They wanted a completely fresh start, so they wanted to be someplace else. They didn't care where. They just didn't want to be in Shreveport. Tom Hall had gone to college in Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison, I believe, and loved Wisconsin and conned everybody else, none of which had ever lived that far north before, into going to Wisconsin with him. So there was a very brief period of time where the company was located in Wisconsin. Then the cold hit, the winter hit, and they were like, this is dumb. And they eventually, after not too long, moved down to Dallas, Texas to be near Apogee. And they're still in Texas today. But uh, <laughs> in this very brief period, they were up in Madison, Wisconsin. Wisconsin is not exactly a haven of game development, then or now. But one day, Romero noticed in the local paper another Madison area game company that was advertising that they needed programmers. So it was like, oh, that's interesting. There's actually another game company here. I should talk to them. This was, of course, Raven Software. He got to know them, and they got kind of friendly. So he was like, hey, would you like to make some games using the Keen Engine? We'll give you the Keen Engine, and you can make the games, and, and we'll help you, you know, get them out or whatever. The owner of the company, Brian Raffle, was really interested in this, but his team didn't want to do it. They had kind of been on the Amiga, and the Amiga had more colors than the PC, and the team was still a little snobbish about it, and they were like, oh, we can't do this on this EGA platform. It's just a bunch of cyan and pink. <laughs> well, it, it is EGA. They get 16 whole colors. It's, it's not four colors EGA, which is especially brightening. You do get 16 whole colors, but still, it's not what they wanted to do. And so, again, just like licensing the Keen Engine didn't work out, 
getting Raven Software to make games that they helped publish using their engine also didn't work out, but the group stayed in touch, and this contact would become important later. So you have Carmack innovating on the engine side, you have Romero not only innovating on the tools side and the game design side, but also innovating on the business side of like how you can exploit your engine in alliance with other companies, either through a direct development relationship or through a licensing deal. All of this innovation is going on. Meanwhile, Carmack is starting to explore 3D in some of his games for Gamer's Edge, for soft disk that they have to keep making, Hover Tank 1 and uh, Catacombs 3D being those games. Catacombs also famously being their first texture-mapped game, which Carmack ended up doing after John Romero was talking to his old co-worker and mentor at Origin, Paul Newrath, who was telling him how his people, who were currently working on what would become Ultima Underworld, had done this texture-mapping thing. Then Romero was telling Carmack about it, and Carmack was like, I think I can do that. You know, he's starting to refine this 3D thing. But they're doing it on their soft disk games, so they're fairly unremarked upon. They kind of fly under the radar, Hover Tank 1 and Catacombs do. Meanwhile, they've done their first Keen trilogy. They've done their second Keen trilogy, which ended up being two shareware episodes and a retail release because of the deal Mark Rain made. Now it's time to do the next thing, and Tom Hall wants to do another Keen trilogy. His entire idea, kind of inspired by what George Lucas has said about Star Wars, is that he wants to complete a trilogy of trilogies of Keen games. He's very into this. Like, he's, he's put his heart and soul into Keen. It is Tom Hall's baby, more than anyone else's. So they start work on an upgraded version of the engine with parallax scrolling and other advanced new features. But everyone else is kind of bored. They're like, we don't want to do another one of these Keen games. Like, we've done that. I mean, they're good games. We did some good work. But we've made way too many levels of side-scrolling, platforming Keen stuff. We're ready to do something else. Carmack's like, yeah, and I've been getting this 3D engine together, and I've got the texture mapping going, and, you know, the, the future's 3D. The future isn't this 2D stuff. They're tossing around ideas, and then John Romero's like, because he's always been an aficionado of the games of the past. He's always been an avid gamer, even at this point, avid interest in the history of games. And he's like, well, why don't we just make a 3D version of Wolfenstein, of Castle Wolfenstein, the old Silas Warner Apple II stealth shooting game? So everyone's like, sure, yeah, let's do that. So that's the start of Wolfenstein 3D. We're not really going to talk about Wolfenstein 3D in this episode. It's not important for what we're talking about today. Obviously, it was a massive hit. It was hugely influential. And we talked about it before. Yeah. There's really no change in the way things are being done here. You've got Carmack perfecting his engine. You have Romero making tools and doing level design. You have Tom Hall doing overall creative direction and and story design, as well as designing levels. You have Adrian Carmack and the other artists that they have brought with them from SoftDisk. Kevin Cloud doing artwork. It's just same old, same old from our perspective. It's the next game that they do, the next major game that they do, because there's some other stuff in there, but it's the next major game that they do that really is their next leap forward after Slordax and Keen towards a a new paradigm in game development, and that is, of course, Doom. We're not going to do the Doom story. It's been done. But I just want to focus on a few specific things about Doom. 
the main thing we have to focus on is the departure of Tom Hall. Because we had a situation here where Carmack was pushing more and more towards getting a better engine, a faster engine, something that could just do the most ridiculously adrenaline-pumping gameplay at 60 frames per second, and just blow you through these environments full of monsters. John Carmack is not a fan of elaborate backstory. John Carmack's most famous quote on this, Story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not that important. John Romero isn't as against story as John Carmack is, but John Romero is still about gameplay first. When he's thinking about building levels, He's thinking about the game experience before he's thinking about the story experience. So there comes to be a disconnect in the early days of the making of Doom, where Tom Hall, while they're waiting for the engine to get done, because these games always start with Carmack doing his latest version of the engine, while they do other things like make licensing deals, there are other companies that use the Wolfenstein engine, do follow-up releases, retail releases, they do the whole Spear Destiny thing. So that stuff's going on, and then also thinking about what we're doing next. During this time, Tom Hall writes this elaborate backstory about Mars and demons and all of this. He creates this document that he calls the Doom Bible that has, you know, like a show Bible of a television show that just has all this information about the world and the plot and all of this. He starts designing levels. He's putting realism first, like he's trying to design realistic-looking military bases and government facilities and labs and all of this. He says he's doing that because that's what John Carmack told him to design. Obviously, there are going to be some different views and, and hurt feelings around this whole situation. But whatever the reason, he was spending all of this time on this stuff that neither Carmack nor Romero thought was very important. And, and John Romero didn't really feel like he was designing levels that really took advantage of the capabilities of this new engine with its ability for triggers and different lighting effects and platforms that raise and lower, walls and ceilings of variable heights, and all of this stuff that they just didn't have before in their previous engines. Everything comes to a head. Tom's unhappy. Everyone else is kind of unhappy with him, and the other partners fire him. They vote him out of the company. So this leaves a hole, because he was their main creative and designer. They don't really feel that they need another creative in the same way that Tom Hall was a creative. In fact, John Romero and John Carmack are kind of down on the entire idea of bringing in any type of creative person to replace Tom Hall. They feel like Tom has become more of a hindrance in their games these days than a help, and, and they don't want to bring in somebody else that's going to bring a similar vibe and kind of interfere with this pure adrenaline and pure level design stuff that they have going on. They're kind of expecting the artists, perhaps, Adrian Carmack and Kevin Cloud, to take a little bit more of maybe filling in some of those gaps, but not necessarily hire another designer. Well, the artists want nothing to do with this. They're not designers, they're artists. So Kevin puts forward this guy that he'd heard of by the name of Sandy Peterson. We've talked about Sandy before, very recently actually, in our Microprose episode, because Sandy Peterson was one of several of those pen and paper game designers 
that transitioned into computer game design, video game design with Microprose. He was there for a few years, but then when Microprose got into all of its trouble in 1992, he was laid off. Peterson is legendary in the pen and paper world because he is the principal creator of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game for Chaosium. He also did a lot of RuneQuest supplements. So he was very, very well known in that area. He was an avid video game player. We talked about him coming to Microprose in our Microprose episode, so we won't do that here. Suffice it to say, he had a lot of design experience just by virtue of designing supplements and modules for pen and paper RPGs. He also had some game experience. Ended up, they were particularly intrigued by him, John Romero especially, because they were thinking that they might do some kind of flight game after they did Doom. They never did. But they were thinking of doing some kind of flight game, not a pure flight simulator like what Microprose was doing, but kind of an action flying game where you're going around bombing targets. The fact that Sandy had worked at Microprose, which was an expert of flying games, made him all the more appealing. John Romero was also very impressed by his knowledge of games, because he was an avid game player, Sandy, and so just he knew all the games, video games too. They're won over and they decide to hire him. Here's the interesting thing for our purposes. John Romero is really designing the game. He's doing the tools. He's coming up with, you know, most of the weapons, the enemies, all of this stuff. He's the game designer, and he's also doing a lot of the levels. Sandy Peterson isn't brought in at the same level of kind of creative director as Tom Hall was. He's brought in as a designer. His credit on Doom is a designer. But he's a designer that is basically just there to build levels. I'm not saying he's the very first level designer ever, because again, we're not doing firsts in this episode. But this is one of the first times where someone is brought in basically just to be a level designer. Obviously, levels have been designed as long as there have been games with levels. But there wasn't a breaking off of level design from everything else that you had to design, like the enemies, the strength of various things, the weapons, the interface. You know, that was all design, and levels were just one of those things that the designers took care of. But now we're bringing in someone whose job is specifically level design. This goes back again to how we're getting a greater emphasis on levels and the way levels fit together, something that id has been championing since Keen, but outside of Super Mario Brothers and a few other examples, is not really something that's being thought of widely, particularly in the West. Romero and Peterson, they're designing all the levels, essentially. Now, Peterson says that Tom Hall deserves more credit than he usually gets because he says that Tom had designed a few levels before he left and Peterson tweaked the levels that Hall had already done and then made some brand new ones too. He wasn't just tweaking, but he feels Hall should have gotten credit as well because he feels that some of those levels he only slightly tweaked. Romero and Peterson are essentially designing all the levels with a little bit of early assist from Hall and they have very different styles. Romero tends to like having central hubs and levels that loop back on themselves. Like you start in the central hub, you can see something cool out of reach. You know that somehow you're going to be able to get there later. 
then he wants to take you on a journey where you go this direction, loop back around, come back, go to another wing, you know, kind of these levels like that. Sandy Peterson likes huge levels. He likes these wide rambling levels. Not all of his levels are big and rambling, but that's something he likes. A good example, uh, and this is Doom 2, not Doom, but you may remember that some of the levels kind of in the mid-game, they take place in cities, you know, with these individual buildings and, you know, lots of open ground between them. Those were Peterson levels. The other thing that Sandy Peterson likes is he loves really devious traps. Not that Romero doesn't set traps either. Peterson is the guy who loves to put a really fancy item in a dark room on a lighted pedestal so that you just know when you pick up that life orb or you pick up that BFG 9000 or whatever, that it's going to trigger something that's going to be flooded with monsters. He also made the level in Doom 2 that's a really small level, but it expands outward. Like you start in this really small room, you hit a switch and you rise up. There are the mancubuses on the four platforms. You have to defeat them. And then another wall lowers and there's like arachnodemons everywhere. I could look up the exact level if I wanted to. But, you know, you start in this small space and it slowly expands out into these increasing fights with groups of monsters. Why would you want to look up these levels when editing Jeffrey can do it? There you go. Editing Jeffrey will look these up. He also liked creating conflicts between groups of enemies because they did create code for the game where enemies of different types would attack each other if they were too close to each other. So Sandy Peterson liked having big epic battles where like cyber demons and barons of hell are shooting at each other. And really, your job is to just watch it unfold and not distract them from killing each other. Both of them are great level designers, but again, the thing that Doom brings into focus is the level design is so clever and so devious. The way they use lighting, the way they use lifts, the way they use monster closets, the way they use teleporters and secret rooms and triggers, the architecture of levels to move you in the directions that they want you to move within these pseudo 3D spaces. It's a tour de force. Doom and Doom 2 both are tour de forces in level design, and it's really the first time that you have dedicated level designers. Sandy Peterson is a dedicated level designer. And then when you get to Doom 2, they had brought on a 21-year-old kid with the uh, unusual name of American McGee, his real name, who had been something of a uh, science prodigy in school, but had a very, very unstable home life. Never knew his father had a succession of not-so-great stepfathers, and finally, his mother abandoned him with her trans girlfriend, sold their house and all of their possessions, except for some of Americans' clothes and his Commodore 64, to pay for a, a gender reassignment operation for her trans girlfriend, and abandoned him at the age of 16. I mean, just wild story. He drops out of high school, and he's ending up working as an auto mechanic. He's really into games, but he has no formal training, no formal education, but he ends up living in the same apartment building as John Carmack. They need a second tester quality assurance tech support kind of person. They have one by the name of Sean Green, and they need another one. So Carmack hires American to be their just low-level guy. Doom gets made. Doom 2 comes around. And Americans like, you know, I'd like to try my hands at some levels, too. And so they're like, sure, go for it. He's not a coder. 
He's played games and he's liked fooling around on his Commodore 64. He's not an idiot, but he has really no experience with making games. He's not a coder, but he turns out to be brilliant at making levels. So in Doom 2, it's the three of them, John Romero, Sandy Peterson, and American McGee. At least Sandy had some other things technically. Now they have these two guys that are just level designers, and one of them has never really had any kind of game design experience ever before. This is id really creating the concept of the level designer. Again, I'm not saying they were the first to ever have a person specifically hired to design levels. But this is a real paradigm shift. This is the beginning of levels as a thing you really pay attention to, but it goes beyond that. Because, of course, as we know, Doom became very famous as a game that everybody modded. It was very easy to hack into the WAD files and unpack all the levels and tinker with the levels. It wasn't long before there were third-party editing programs being created so you could go in and edit levels. So then you had just a lot of high school students, college students, whatever, that just in their spare time were starting to build their own levels with these tools and releasing them on the internet. And of course, this was the very early days of the World Wide Web. This was the first time that a lot of people were on the internet. So Doom became one of the very first mass market internet phenomenons for a game where people are modding and making their own enhancements and releasing levels and turning enemies into Barneys and all of that kind of Using stuff. Using Doom as a system admin tool so that every process has a health bar, and if you want to kill the process, you shoot it with a shotgun. <laughs> yes. Yes, and, and doing total conversions for things like Star Wars and Aliens and other classic sci-fi things. The thing is, this raised a whole new generation of level designers, people who had never designed games before, people who may have never even considered in their life that they would be game designers, specifically designing levels. So as Doom and the first-person shooter movement really takes off, and the modding scene really takes off, and other companies want to emulate Doom and make their own games, the way they staff up their teams quickly to make similar games, because you got to get on this market fast, is they hire modders. The two big examples of this, Unreal. A lot of the people that made levels in Unreal were Doom modders that Epic hired to help create Unreal. Same thing with Half-Life. A lot of the level design was done by people who were former modders. You're a new startup or a relatively small company. Epic wasn't new, as, as we know, because we've done a, an episode on them. But if you're either a brand new company or you're a small company that's now expanding to take on these bigger AAA games like these first-person shooters, and you need to staff up real fast with experienced people that are not only experienced, but also won't be commanding top dollar in the marketplace because they've never worked in the industry before, you go to these modders and you hire them. Or, of course, the modders just make mods that are so popular that they become commercial products, like the people that made Counter-Strike or the people that made the original Team Fortress. It's because of the popularity of Doom and the modding community around Doom that I think you really get this idea that level designers are something you specifically hire, and level designers bring something specific to your game that a general designer doesn't necessarily bring. And even id themselves do this, because as they begin work on their next game or their next big game, Quake, they're still doing these side deals. 
they're finally starting to get licenses for their engine. A lot of people use the Doom engine. Raven Software, whom I said they kept in touch with, now that they've got this hot technology in 3D and nobody worried about, uh, do we have to do 16 colors anymore? Raven is now thrilled to be working with id and uh, of course makes the games heretic and hexen using a modified version of the doom engine plus they're licensing the engine to other people this doom engine has been retroactively named id tech one because now id calls all of their engines id tech one two three four but they didn't do that back in the day it was just called the doom engine back then but now it's retroactively been relabeled id tech one becomes one of the first licensed engines. They also are making deals with other companies. They make a deal with a a small company called Cygnus to make a game with the Wolfenstein engine while they're working on the Doom stuff called Strife. That doesn't really go anywhere because the Wolfenstein engine's getting older and older and there's some problems within the company with the management style of the owner and everything that causes a lot of tension, it's it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, with the exception that one of the people working at that company was a modder, a level creator, by the name of Tim Willits, who started out, you know, fell in love with Doom, was making his own levels, loving it, got hired by this small company, because the small companies would go and look for these guys. It turned out he was just an absolutely brilliant level designer. In fact, it had chosen one of his levels, even before he joined this small company, it had chosen one of his levels to appear on a mod level compilation thing. They actually helped him get the job. When this company fell apart, they offered Tim Willits a job at id, and he's still there today. And I mean, he's been the lead designer on many of their more recent games. Now that John Carmack has left id, he's kind of the big creative guy at id now, I think it's fair to say. And he started out as a modder, then went to a small company that was recruiting modders, and then went straight to id itself as a level designer. So on Quake, it was John Romero, Sandy Peterson, American McGee, and Tim Willits doing the levels. It's an interesting thing looking at their credits on the games. Because in Doom and Doom 2, they only credit designers. In the credits, Sandy Peterson is listed as a designer, and American McGee in Doom 2 is listed as a designer. In Quake, they just list them as designers again, but they actually include a full credit list of all the levels and who designed each level. This level by this person, this level by that person. By Quake 2, they are calling them level designers. Now, they're not the first company to ever call someone a level designer in the credits of a game. Again, we're not talking about firsts here. But you can see how this is evolving. It's like they call them designers in Doom, but by Quake 2, they're calling them level designers. That's over the space of just a few short years, you know, four years or so, that this is happening. This this whole new kind of profession's come up. So they've done this idea of separating the engine from other things. They've done this idea of level, of splitting off level designers. They're really creating a lot of the modern industry in the way they are choosing to do things. We'll wrap this up by just talking about one more game, and that's Quake, because we want to take this to the conclusion where this system that's working so well for them kind of starts to come crashing down And it becomes clear that while the system that they've made is going to be the system going forward, this is the way companies are going to operate, the days where you can do it with just a small handful of people are over. True mass specialization is going to start. 
the reason for that is that Quake is the first game they're going to do that is full 3D. The Doom engine cheats. It's 2.5D. There's no six degrees of freedom. There's no look up, look down. The monsters in the game are all still two-dimensional sprites, just shown from various angles. It cheats. Quake is going to be their first game that doesn't cheat. Also, they hadn't quite anticipated how big the internet was going to get for games. There was multiplayer in Doom and Doom 2, but it wasn't natively meant to be played over the internet using a client-server model. I wasn't joking when I said that I had to teach Alex how to program a modem initiation thing. I wish I still remember that code. Yes, indeed. Doom was multiplayer, but it wasn't optimized for the internet because when they were making it, no one was was thinking of the of the internet. It was going to be fully 3D. It was going to feature client-server multiplayer. And another thing that was very innovative about it, again, I'm not saying they were first, but it was very innovative, is that John Carmack for this one decided that he was going to completely separate the engine from all gameplay coding and create a scripting language called Quake C, in which you would instruct the engine to do things. The analogy that John Romero uses in his book is, think of a car. In the older games, the engine of the game would not only contain like what you would think of as the engine of the car, it would also contain the gas pedal and the brake pedal that was hooked up to the car, and some of those other things that manipulate the engine. So anytime you wanted to make a change to something like that, you had to recompile the entire engine. Well, what John Carmack did with Quake, and the Quake engine, retroactively called id Tech 2, and something that was adopted by everyone afterwards, including the most notable middleware Unreal, was we're going to completely detach the engine from all the gameplay coding and rely on a, on a language and scripting in order to do that. So in this model, the engine is only the car engine. The car engine has a place where it can accept input from a gas pedal, but the engine doesn't actually have the instructions saying that a gas pedal is going to go here and it is going to work this way. Instead, you use the scripting language to say, okay, engine, I'm going to poke you in this way to make acceleration happen. That way, all you have to do is change the scripting. You don't have to recompile the engine every time you put new gameplay elements in. Hopefully, I, I did that analogy in a way that makes sense. So I have an engine that does the thing that moves the car. Normally, we have the gas pedal go forward and the brake stops the car. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to change those around, I have to get my mechanics toolkit out and do a lot of very extensive and complicated re-kajiggering. Mm -hmm. With this new script, I just say, oh, this is just a modular thing. I just unplug the uh, gas pedal and unplug the brake and just flop them around, and now the brake does the accelerating, and now the gas pedal does the braking. Exactly. It's, it's way more efficient, and it also uh, helps with the licensing because you don't necessarily have to give up all of the secrets of your engine, all of your source code, to be able to license your engine. All you need to do is give them the base engine and then the scripting language to modify the engine, which makes it a lot more feasible to do engine licensing without fear that everyone's just going to reverse engineer and steal it from you. So it has a couple of advantages. 
Now, future engines after the Quake engine don't use proprietary languages in that way anymore. The way it works today is you generally will just do your scripting in C++ or some other language, and then you'll use DLLs, just standard Windows DLLs, to house all that information rather than having a custom language that talks to your engine in a special custom way. They will have an API that speaks certain, that says, okay, I have an API for my engine to interface with it. Mm -hmm. That API can talk with these languages. Right, and, and, it's, and it's usually done through the, through the DLL file format. This was another Carmack innovation that everyone copied and became the standard, this idea. So now we have engines completely walled off from everything, and you just interface with the engine using scripting. And then, of course, another layer down from that, you have tooling in order to do things like build levels and build graphic sets and all of this other stuff. These multiple tiers have been created. And, of course, there's a division of labor at id with Romero always doing the tools and Carmack doing all the high-end stuff, uh, the engine and the scripting language, the scripting interface. However, this is so much stuff that is so complex that it takes forever. It takes over a year for Carmack to get the engine done. And that's even with bringing in another programmer, John Cash, to do the networking code and hiring that graphics guru that got Carmack started on his scrolling stuff back in the day, Michael Abrash, as a second engine coder to work with Carmack. In the past, it had only taken him a couple of months to do an engine. So there wasn't really that much waiting around by the rest of the team. Maybe they'd have to wait around a little bit, but they had other things they could do. They could be working on expansion packs. They could be coordinating with outside developers using their tech. Of course, Carmack always needed some test design done. He needed people to use the engine he was building and, and build little test levels and whatnot to make sure things were working properly. You know, it didn't really stall the company in the past, but this engine was way more complicated because it's full 3D and all this other stuff. So it took over a year to get this thing done. Meanwhile, the team is just spinning their wheels. American McGee kind of becomes the primary test-level creator. He's working closely with Carmack to make little tests as they work along, but everyone else really doesn't have anything to do. So they start building levels, but it's more to kind of get their heads around the engine and get their heads around making things in real 3D, which none of them have had to do before. They're not really levels that are going to be necessarily usable in the final game, which at this point is meant to be this big kind of epic based on their D&D campaign, which featured a main character that wielded a giant hammer and was followed around by a, a sentient cube by the name of Quake. The cube's not named Quake, but the D&D character was named Quake. That's where the name Quake came from. It was going to be medieval. It was going to be more close combat. It wasn't going to be an RPG, but it was going to be a little more RPG-like than their previous games had been, since it was based on this D&D character. While the team's just spinning their wheels and waiting for this to get done as they're starting to experiment with the e level editor, they kind of default to making the kinds of levels they know how to make, which are shooter levels. Because they did Doom, and they did Doom 2. By the time the engine is finally finished, they are just burnt out. At this point, Romero's like, yes, the engine is done. Now we can finally start making Quake, our game based around this character from this D&D campaign that at this point only half of them know about because, you know, it was Carmack's campaign. Sandy Peterson wasn't a part of it. American McGee wasn't a part of it. <laughs> you know, it's not special to most of the team. It's not nostalgic to most of the team. 
the team's just burnt out. They're done. It's like, ugh, if we do that, none of the work we've already done can be used. All this test work we've done, we have to throw out and start all over again. Let's just make another shooter. Romero really didn't want to, but he bowed to the rest of the team, who I think were right in this instance. I mean, I understand why Romero was disappointed, but they just needed to get a game done. And it made sense at this point to go with what they know rather than try to do something new and strange and fancy. So I agree with the team on this one. And that was Carmack's feeling, too. Carmack, as he got near done with the engine and he was seeing this test stuff American McGee was doing with him, he was like, you know, this really does work well as a shooter engine. Why are we trying to reinvent the wheel? So Carmack was against him. Most of the designers tried to stay scrupulously neutral. They didn't want to get involved in this fight and said, I could go either way. And, And a couple of them were like, no, no, we're burned out. We don't want to start over on this. They end up making Quake as a first-person shooter, and this is kind of the reason the Quake doesn't really hold together as a game very well. People have fond memories of doing the deathmatch in Quake, because it's still a good game engine and all of that, but like the single-player campaign has all of these weird mishmashes of levels and textures and monsters, none of which is very coherent. The reason for that is all of this. It's also not a very colorful game. It's very brown, because... Another innovation that Carmack was doing in this was having finer gradations of lighting. But this is going to be a VGA game still because we're on the cusp of 3D graphics acceleration. But at the time they're building the game, it's not quite there yet. So they don't see how they can do a first-person shooter at 60 frames per second at 16-bit color depth and SVGA graphics because GPUs don't really exist yet. (laughs) And you really need a GPU to make that happen. They target VGA and they target 8-bit color depth. But since they're doing these fine gradations of lighting, every gradation of lighting in every color is another color on the palette. So even though VGA is 256 colors, when you get done with all of the different gradations of all of the different colors you need for the lighting, you're left with only a palette of 16 colors. So the game is very dull in terms of colors for that reason. There's a lot wrong with it, but there's also a lot right with it. And obviously the series gets better as it goes on. And it's still a milestone, a groundbreaking game for a lot of reasons. This is what I mean by it shows the limits of the system now. You can't just have one engine coder anymore. You need whole teams of people doing all of these things. You can't just have one level designer being responsible for all aspects of creating an environment because they'll get burned out. You need to start subdividing more. You need more of this, more of that, more, more, more. Of course, Romero leaves the company after this. As he says it, he was already planning to leave, and then they end up firing him. Either way, it was at this moment, even though he stayed on to finish Quake, he didn't leave right away. It was in this moment when they just made another first-person shooter that he decided that he was gone and he was going to leave the company. That's kind of the end of the first phase of id. The two Johns are no more, and John Carmack is firmly, firmly in control of all aspects of the company. I mean, it's not that he's going to do everything himself, but it's just John Carmack's word is law because they accidentally made him the indispensable person because he was the tech genius that could make the computer do amazing things through the engine. Even though John Romero was an amazing designer... They could find another amazing designer to replace Romero. They could not necessarily find another brilliant coder to replace Carmack. That's why Carmack comes to completely dominate the company. Romero's out, and it's a new generation. 
hopefully through the course of this episode, you can see all the things that they did that were so innovative, separating engine programming from gameplay programming, having somebody specifically responsible for creating tools that make it easy for a variety of people to create content. Again, not the first person to do that. We even talked about how Microprose was doing some of that in our last episode, but still a relatively new concept where you enable designers with tooling instead of somebody who's a good programmer and a good designer being like, I'm going to create some tools to help me create a game. It's, I'm going to make some great tools to help other people who aren't as good at programmers create a game. The level design discipline as a distinct discipline, the design of a level in general just being something important to the foundation of a game, the idea of licensing your engine to other people, the creation of the modding community, which led to a huge focus on level designers and hiring people specifically as level designers out of that community. All of these things, even though most of them were not pioneered specifically by id, They were all practiced to such an exceptional degree by id and led to the creation of such hit games, such influential games, that they basically had the whole industry following in their wake. And that's why we have things like the Unreal Engine today is because of what id did. And I think it really came down to the fact that they started out in this pressure cooker environment where they had these three or four talented individuals that because of the deadline pressures they were under, they couldn't, as was traditional at that time for small studios, they couldn't go off and all do their own thing. They had to join together to create one really good thing in a really short period of time and therefore had to figure out how to do that as efficiently as possible, which led them to this separation of the elements of their game and the separation of the jobs that go into creating a game. If only they could have kept that same pressure cooker thing going forward. Well, that would have burned everyone out to death. As I said, Quake was the textbook example of how a small team could no longer function in that kind of environment anymore. But of course, the things id were doing are the things companies still do today. It's just that instead of having nine people do them, they have hundreds of people do them. That's why you have one person whose sole responsibility is to place all the trees in the level. Exactly. I'd ask you what happens next time, but I already know what happened next time because it already happened next time. That's right. As I said at the top of the episode, we have at this point, even though it is still in our future lives, we have done our great live stream. We have those episodes in the can. Jeffrey has already started panicking about how the heck am I going to get this edited into three things resembling episodes. Therefore, the next three episodes will be that epic three-parter on handheld games. Episode 198, 199, and 200! Tell me, Alex, did you think we'd actually ever reach 200 episodes? No. (laughs) You know, I mean, you hope something like this keeps going. Obviously, and and we'll reflect more on 200 in in the actual 200 episodes, so I won't take much time to do that now. But I'll just say, no, but I am incredibly happy that we have. You thought 100 was insane. Wait till you see 200. Next time on They Create World. At Big Jeffrey's Podcast Editing Emporium, we want to make sure that you enjoy this podcast. So make sure to check out their show notes at theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. 
You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered at CRC Press and at major online retailers. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. The Doom stuff is from Doom. It's used as a parody. Outro music is Back to Your Love by Roller Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Big Jeffrey's Podcast Editing Emporium would like to thank you for listening to this edited podcast by Big Jeffrey. We don't do any other podcast. We would go crazy. <laughs>